and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. How wonderful it is to be here in person at StoryFest 2021. We're on Murramurang country of the Yuan Nation and I pay my respects to elders past and present. Just a bit of a housekeeping, which um, we're well into the festival, so you'll know the drill. Your phones are off or else they're on silent or perhaps they're on airplane mode, but they're not going to ring. Um, you're tweeting away and if your phones are on but on silent and you're using the social media handle at StoryFest Inc or hashtag StoryFest 2021. There'll be time for questions so please have them ready and Craig will be signing his books downstairs and we'd really love it if you could join us down there. First, let me introduce myself to you. My name's Suzanne Leal. I'm the author of novels, The Teacher's Secret and The Deceptions. I also co-present the Bad All About Crime podcast and host the online book club, Thursday Book Club. But this afternoon, I'm so delighted to be here in conversation with Craig Sylvie, who will be well known to you as the author of the award-winning and much acclaimed novel, Jasper Jones, to the right. And in September last year, of course, his new novel, Honeybee, was released, again to much acclaim. It was named the Dimmick's Book of the Year for 2020 and won the 2021 Indie Book Award for Fiction. Congratulations to you, Craig, and welcome to oh. Sorry Fest. <laughs> You've come a long way, Craig. You've come from Perth to be with us here today. I have, yes, indeed, intrepidly crossed the border. <laughs> Um, but I'm very happy to be here. I just want to thank everybody for, for coming along. I can't tell you how grateful I am uh, to be back in a room full of people uh, to be able to talk about books and stories, I, and I genuinely appreciate it, so thank you. Now, many people in the audience will already have read Honeybee, but not everybody, I suspect. So for those particularly who haven't read it, I'm hoping you might whet our appetite with an opening read. I'd love to, yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to read from uh, the beginning of the book, from, from chapter one, uh, from a chapter called The End. I wasn't cold, but I was shivering when I walked on to the Clayton Road overpass. I wasn't scared either, even when I climbed over the rail. I didn't really feel much of anything. It was late at night and it was quiet. No cars went past. I looked at the road below. It was a long way down. 
I focused on the spot where I would probably land, between the white line and the brown gravel. I wondered if it would hurt or if I would die straight away. Then I wondered who would find me. Maybe it would be a truck driver or a shift worker. I felt bad for them. I must have been thinking about things for a while because when I looked across to my right, I saw a man down the other end of the overpass. He was smoking a cigarette. I could see the orange end glowing in the dark. I got nervous. He was probably walking his dog or something. I didn't want him to come closer. So I closed my eyes and let go of the rail. But then I realized it would be awful if he saw me do it. I decided to wait. I looked back at the man from under my hoodie and I noticed something that I hadn't seen at first. He was on the other side of the rail too. I wasn't sure what to do. I knew I should call out or say something, but I didn't have the courage. He ashed his cigarette and flicked it. I watched it spin in the air and hit the road below. When I looked back up, the man was staring at me. I turned away and I felt like I'd been caught out. I heard his footsteps walking towards me. He didn't rush. I shuffled across and kept my head down. I thought about falling then and there, but my mind got really crowded and I froze. I flinched when I heard his voice. I'm not here to talk you out of it. I was still looking down. Don't come any closer, I said. Righto. I guessed he was a couple of meters away. Just stay there. I understand. He was calm. I sneaked a look at him. He was old. He had a short grey beard and wore a dark wool jumper and grey pants. He leaned on the rail and looked down at the road. He didn't say anything else. I edged further away from him. He didn't move, but it felt like he was following me. I couldn't stop shaking. My teeth were clacking together. My head was still throbbing from before, and there was a high-pitched ringing sound in my ears. I felt so panicked and dizzy that my mind floated outside my body, and I could see myself from above. Everything went still, and nothing mattered. It was peaceful and silent up there. I watched myself lean forwards, and that's when I dropped. I'll leave it there, Suzanne. Uh, oh, thank you very much. It's a pretty confronting beginning to a book. It's startling, and let's face it, it's called The End. Now, Sam has been born a boy, but he's never felt comfortable in his body. Tell me about that. Tell me about Sam. Right, so Honeybee tells the story of a young trans teenager called Sam Watson. Uh, Sam was assigned male at birth, uh, but she identifies as female. Um, and Honeybee tells the story of Sam meeting Vic, an old man who we just encountered late one night when she steps onto a quiet traffic bridge with the intention of ending her life. Uh, and Honeybee ultimately tells the story about the friendship that blooms between the two of them and the efforts that they make to repair each other. Um, it's difficult to talk about Sam without talking about uh, the events that preceded mm -hmm. the novel and the, the origins of, of the story. Um, 
it's traditionally been a, a difficult question for me to answer where my ideas come from because uh, it's often quite abstract, quite arbitrary where any given idea is, uh, emerges from for, for a novelist. You just have a kind of intuitive sense that you've been given something. However, with Honeybee, uh, the provenance of the story actually stems from a, a real event. A few years ago now, my brother uh, picked up his partner from the airport and he was driving her home to Fremantle. And as they crossed the, the Canning Highway overpass in Perth, through the corner of his eye, he noticed a young person standing on the wrong side of the rails and they were precariously poised. And so he pulled over immediately and he called the police while my sister-in-law got out of the car and she approached this young person largely with the ambition to just distract them really while help was on the way. And after he spoke to the police, my brother contacted me and I was at home uh, in my office working and I felt immediately uh, concerned and connected and worried um, and I continued to, to receive updates. So my sister-in-law spoke to this young person about everything and nothing really until a trust bloomed between the two of them, uh, a, a rapport emerged, and this young person volunteered the reasons why they were there. And the truth is that they were struggling with their gender identity. They had been kicked out of home as they'd lost the support of their friends and their family. And they found themselves uh, hopelessly alone in a very anguished and helpless place. And soon after, uh, the police turned up with an ambulance in tow and they were quite brusque, quite businesslike. They grabbed this young person, dragged them back over the rail and deposited them in the back of an ambulance. And my sister-in-law was summarily dismissed. She wasn't required to give a statement. Um, she just drifted away from the scene and they drove away. And in the following days, we tried to reconnect with this young person. We wanted to check in uh, and offer our support. Um, but unfortunately, they had a really common name and we couldn't locate them anywhere. Uh, and so, for me, I had quite a curious situation where I had a very real and urgent concern for somebody with a very real and urgent predicament who existed entirely in my imagination. <laughs> you know, I never met them, um, but I desperately wanted to. Uh, I wanted to offer my support. I wanted to uh, listen to them. I wanted to learn from them. I wanted to appreciate their environment and how they'd arrived at that place and, uh, and how things might get better for them. And I've long been an ally to the trans and gender diverse community, but this event inspired me to better educate myself as to uh, the pressures and the challenges uh, that people in the trans and gender diverse community face. Um, and when faced with things that I don't readily understand, with elements of life that feel abstract to me, my process has always been to want to write about it. It's, it's how I clarify the abstract. And I suppose that was the, uh, that was the seed, I suppose. That was, that was the, the, the beginning point for Honeybee. Um, I embarked on this journey first, with the first intention to honour that person on that bridge that night, not to tell their story because it's not mine to tell, but to honour them. But I also wanted to answer a question, and that question was, how does somebody like that person, 
like Sam Watson, like anybody similarly situated, how do they climb back over the rail uh, and find themselves on a more optimistic pathway? And across the length and breadth of my research, a critical determinant that uh, continued to bubble to the surface over and over again was the importance of support. And that's ultimately what Honeybee is about. I know it has very bleak and grim beginnings, but it's actually uh, a very life-affirming, very hopeful, very optimistic story about the importance of love and community and support and acceptance and affirmation and understanding. Thanks, Craig. I'm with you on all that. We're living in particularly interesting times at the moment where questions keep on coming up as to who gets to tell whose story. So let me be very direct. As a straight man, do you have the right to tell the story of a trans person? And if you do, why? So I'm acutely aware uh, that Sam's journey, Sam's story, doesn't emerge from my lived experience. I'm a white cisgender man. Uh, and that means, fundamentally, I need to acknowledge the fact that I don't navigate the world with the same pressures and threats and risks as members of the trans and gender diverse community. And I also recognise that this is the privilege that I have. Uh, and that it is fundamentally unjust, that it is unfair. And it's uh, part of the reason why I have uh, pledged my alliance to the fight to bring things into balance. In writing Honeybee, I wanted to focus on how it feels to be Sam. I wanted to capture the emotional complexities of growing up trans uh, in contemporaneous Australia. Not to distill uh, any kind of definitive account of growing up trans in Australia because such a thing doesn't exist. If anything emerged from my research, it's the fact that everybody's story is different. Uh, everybody is exposed to, to different experiences and environments and pressures and threats and risks. Uh, regardless of provenance, that there is no such thing uh, as a de definitive account. Um, but what it required of me is to listen and to learn, uh, to surrender my preconceptions, to ask questions, and most importantly, if I was going to sensitively and authentically and respectfully articulate an experience that uh, I hadn't lived, I needed to connect to that community and, and speak with people. This might seem uh, an obvious approach. However, the unfortunate thing is that if we take into account traditional media representations of trans and gender diverse people, when authored or performed by cisgender people, uh, these depictions sadly have lacked community consultation and they have suffered for it. Um, they have been insensitive and exploitative. They have been degrading 
dehumanizing and occasionally outright dangerous. Um, trans men have been largely erased from uh, our cultural landscape, but in the cases of trans women particularly, they have often been reduced to figures of ridicule or revulsion. Um, toxic tropes have emerged, uh, painting trans women as men in disguise, as fundamentally deceitful, often uh, with ulterior motives. And we need to look no further than J.K. Rowling's recent uh, literary efforts uh, to appreciate that these toxic tropes, uh, these pernicious portraits uh, of the trans and gender diverse community sadly endure. And they leave damaging social legacies. I would argue that uh, much of the reason why we're still stuck in a cycle of having retrograde, uh, pointless public debates about policing the safety of bathrooms and public pools uh, is largely because um, our, uh, our artistic and cultural depictions as it relates to the trans and gender diverse community have been so sadly lacking uh, in sensitivity and respectful portrayal. And so in acknowledging that, for me, uh, my principal intention was to do no harm and to do better. And in appreciating how far a story can travel, I felt I had a great responsibility to do it right, uh, to prepare this story in the most respectful and sensitive way that I could. And so, with that legacy acknowledged, I appreciate why there might be a caution and a suspicion that accompanies the fact that I have written Honeybee. And I bear a responsibility to speak to my credentials as an ally and to reassure readers who are both inside uh, the trans and gender diverse community and outside of it that my approach in writing Honeybee has been uh, respectful and sensitive and above all consultative. And it has been. Uh, you know, I, I read ad, as widely as I could and I collated uh, many, many testimonies from trans and gender diverse people. We live in quite an incredible time uh, where some very inspiring people have volunteered their experiences and their histories uh, and uh, placed them online for people like me to read and appreciate. I read studies uh, and reports and I'm, I immersed myself uh, in those um, so I could have a, a, a broader notion of uh, what the real facts were, um, which were very confronting. Um, high, high reported incidents of anxiety and depression and self-harm uh, that are reported by the trans and gender diverse community. Disproportionate rates of violence against the trans and gender diverse community. And uh, perhaps most alarmingly for me was the fact that almost half 
almost half of young trans and gender diverse people will attempt suicide at some point in their lives. And this struck me as a crisis, and it still does. But most importantly, I connected with support networks like uh, Transfolk of WA, and I met with and interviewed and spoke at length with many people in the trans and gender diverse community of various ages and backgrounds and experiences, all of whom were incredibly enthusiastic and encouraging about the book, all of whom were incredibly gracious and forthcoming uh, with the intimate details of, of their life. And uh, I think it was, it was that collaboration that really built this story. It was a chorus of voices uh, that sculpted Sam's character and informed her journey. And uh, I, I couldn't have written this story without the contribution of those many people uh, who, who helped me write it. And now that the book's out, what are two reactions that have most pleased you to the book? You've spoken about all the research and all the consultation that took place, but once it came out, are there one or even two reactions that really pleased you or relieved you or delighted you? Uh, uh, I, I've been a very fortunate author uh, over the course of my career. Um, uh, I, I receive a lot of very generous feedback and, and I'm very grateful for it, uh, but nothing has come close to the response that, that Honeybee seems to have engendered. Um, and, and I'm extraordinarily appreciative of, of that. Um, many messages that I've got, many people that I've met brought me to tears. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it has been quite extraordinary. I've heard from uh, I've heard from people who uh, have struggled uh, with self-harm, with, with contending with their gender identity, um, who have found comfort in Honeybee. I've heard from people who have felt so galvanised and so emboldened by reading the book that they have come out to their parents, to their guardians, mm. through their online portals. Um, I've heard from parents who have felt alone, uh, who haven't connected with, with, uh, with groups or support networks, uh, who haven't been able to readily understand what their kids have been going through, who feel uh, better connected to them. In fact, trans and gender diverse people are buying Honeybee and giving it to their family as a tool for them to better understand uh, what they've been going through. And likewise, parents and guardians, family members, are buying Honeybee uh, for their kids who identify as trans or gender diverse so that they can immerse themselves in a story where they are represented and seen and respected. Um, you know, the, the, the responses have been very intimate. Um, uh, and they've been quite extraordinary. So it's very difficult for me to, to narrow it down to, to one or two, uh, but they've all been very, very special to me. Yeah. And what do you think fiction can do in this situation that perhaps not non-fiction can't? Well, that's difficult to answer. Uh, I can only speak to, to what uh, legacy Honeybee might leave. But I, I had a couple of intentions, I suppose, in, in writing Honeybee. You know, it's impossible to, to pick up an, a novel and not meet somebody new. 
Reading stories make us feel less alone. And I wanted to write Honeybee as an opportunity to, to give trans and gender diverse readers, particularly those in their teens, an opportunity to, to, to pick up a mainstream contemporaneous Australian novel and to be able to immerse themselves in the world of a character who might be contending with uh, thoughts and feelings that they may be able to readily identify with. Yeah. To, be, to pick up a novel and feel seen and represented and respected and understood and uh, sensitively uh, depicted. That was something that was really, really important to me. But for readers who are outside the trans and gender diverse community, I wanted to offer people an opportunity to, to better understand the emotional complexities uh, of uh, what trans and gender diverse people uh, experience. And in doing so, I suppose it's an opportunity for us then to be more empathetic more compassionate and better allies um, and th this has been the most heartwarming thing I suppose about a lot of the bulk of uh, the, the responses that I've been getting. It's, it's readers who want to further their reading. I'm hearing from a lot of booksellers who are saying that people after reading Honeybee are coming in requesting more LGBTQIA content which is a, a really wonderful outcome but they're also asking me about how they can support the community better. Uh, how they can be better allies, and so I think uh, that's uh, I think that's a really positive legacy that a that a novel can can lead. Um, I think uh, the fact that transgender diverse readers can pick up Honeybee and potentially feel less alone, I think, is a really beautiful outcome. Um, and I think the conversations that emerge from a book um, uh, are important. And you know, I mentioned earlier the the possibility of poor representations leaving damaging social legacies. I think the books, the stories, the art that endures the longest, I think is more often than not on the right side of history. Uh, and so it's, it, it's my hope that the conversations that emerge from, from Honeybee, um, uh, the, the, the public definition of the work, um, I think can, can uh, can have a very positive outcome. So you've spoken a lot about education and there's a fine line between educating and becoming didactic. Now I don't think you cross that line. I don't think the honeybee is didactic. How do you manage that line? Um, well, what do you need to? It's, as, a, as a novelist, it's, it's not in my interest to tell people how to think. Mm. Um, my first port of call, uh, uh, attending to the characters who inhabit my stories um, and uh, presenting their journey as, as honestly and openly as I can. Um, in terms of what uh, thematic definition uh, a story may one day have, that's not necessarily up to me. A novelist asks questions rather than seeks to answer them. Um, uh, and so trying to pr present something that's, that's set in stone I think undermines the purpose of a novel um, which is to allow the reader at the time and space 
to, to come to their own conclusions and their own resolutions. I love, I love when you say that when you open a work of fiction you meet someone new. Now for me and Honeybee, the person I met that most stayed with me is Vic. And Vic's a Vietnam vet. This is not the first time that you've tackled the subject of the Vietnam War. What is it that keeps you coming back to the question of that war and this time its effects on the veterans? Look, in the case of Vic, uh, it, was, it was more so about the embedded trauma uh, that, that he lives with. You know, we explore masculinity a lot in, in Honeybee. For Sam, masculinity is, is something of a threat. It serves as an antagonist in, in Honeybee. Uh, and in, in this novel, we, we see a spectrum of, of masculine behaviours. Um, some very, very toxic. But in Vic, I think we see some of the virtuous elements of traditional masculinity. Um, you know, Vic is a character of great integrity. Um, he's very wise, he's a protector. Um, he's very consistent. And I'm certainly not suggesting that, that women can't embody these virtues, but I'm speaking more strictly to a traditional sense of, of masculinity. You know, Vic lives his life in accordance to a, uh, to a set of moral laws that I think he adheres to uh, and refers to before any want and desire. He's a character of great integrity, but he's certainly not without his flaws. Um, Vic is a return serviceman, and he suffers in silence. Uh, you know, he, he bears the emotional scars of his experiences, and he does so alone. We actually learn a lot about Vic uh, through his departed wife's diaries. Her name is Edie, uh, and he uh, grieves for her every day. In fact, it's uh, a large part of why he's on the bridge that night. And he lost her many years previously. Um, and Sam goes back to live with, with Vic. And she learns a lot about him by reading Edie's old diary entries. And in these diaries, Edie describes her husband Vic as being a rock. And it's certainly true in the sense that he's very strong. Uh, he's very consistent. Uh, and he perseveres. But it's also true in the sense that he is impermeable and he is silent. And you get the sense that this woman just wanted to shake this man and rattle out these feelings that he's contending with. And I think the beautiful thing about the relationship between Sam and Vic is that it's Sam who gets the blood from the stone. Vic confides in Sam. He trusts her enough to uh, describe his emotional world um, and ultimately it, it leads in his redemption. It frees him uh, from uh, guilt and self-recrimination that he's carried his entire life. Um, and likewise for Sam, um, Vic is a safe space for her to explore who she is and he becomes a catalyst for her change also. Thank you. He's a, he's a really endearing and, um, and highly recognisable character, I think. Returning to Sam, and I'm going to change a little bit with the pronouns here. Um, Sam, when we meet her, is of course on the bridge, but Sam's been brought up as a boy, and Sam has been in a family 
which has not really looked after him. He's a kid who has suffered from some neglect and who finds things tricky. Um, there's a particular scene that I found particularly moving, which really shows what Sam's up against. And I'm hoping you might read that scene for us. Sure. Uh, okay. So this is from a chapter called Fracture. Uh, so just as a bit of grounding, I suppose, uh, Sam has a very, I guess you would describe it as quite a volatile uh, childhood. Uh, she's raised by a single parent called Sarah, um, and they're in their own universe for, for the longest time until Sarah is evicted yet again for, for the last time, basically. Um, and, and then she meets uh, a man called Steve, and they enter his universe. And I suppose Steve is quite emblematic of toxic masculinity. Um, he's a bit of a prick. Um, and there's great pressure on Sam. Sam's been dissuaded throughout her entire life, particularly, but particularly when she uh, goes to live with Steve and Sarah, uh, dissuaded from any demonstration, any exhibition of her femininity, um, which causes her great guilt and shame because it's something that she can't stop. Uh, it's an expression of who she truly is. And so uh, expressions thereof are often shrouded in secrecy. And uh, there's an emphasis out outside her private world on being or presenting as more masculine. It becomes an act for her, something that she needs to perform. So I will, with that caveat, I'll, I'll launch into this reading. A few times a year, Steve would travel up the coast to Lancelin with his friends. They camped for three or four days and fished on his boat and went water skiing and dived for crayfish. Sometimes they took their dirt bikes up to ride them on the dunes. My mum always wanted Steve to take me with him, but he never allowed it. He pretended to be sorry and I pretended to be disappointed. He promised I could go when I was older. When I turned 13, my mum got her way. I tried to get out of it, but she insisted. She said spending more time with Steve's friends would be good for me. We drove up in his four-wheel drive with Steve's friends Rosso, Mick and Wayne, who also worked out on the mines. They wore singlets and thongs and sunglasses. They smoked cigarettes and drank cans of beer from an esky. Every 15 minutes, Mick made everyone be quiet and turned up the radio so he could listen to a horse race he had money on. I sat on my own, right up the back in the enclosed cab with all the bags and boxes and Rosso's grey staffy snags. He was less than a year old and he had sad blue eyes. I didn't realise how far it was to Lancelin. We'd been on the road for an hour and I was uncomfortable because I had drunk a whole bottle of apple juice that Steve had bought me from a service station. I really needed to go. I didn't want to ask Steve to pull over because I knew he would be annoyed. He was already complaining about losing time because of the city traffic. He drove over the limit and overtook cars even though he had a trailer with the dirt bikes attached. I tried to distract myself by squirming and pinching myself and biting the inside of my mouth and counting cars out the window, but nothing helped. It got unbearable. It was almost leaking out of me. 
I stared at the empty bottle of apple juice and wished I hadn't drunk it at all, but it gave me an idea. I unscrewed the lid. Then I moved forwards in the seat and slowly pulled down my shorts. I awkwardly poked my penis into the bottle, and as soon as I did, it all gushed out, so much that I thought they might hear, but nobody turned around. For a second, I felt relieved. Then I saw that the bottle was almost full. I panicked and looked around for another bottle or a plastic bag, but there was no time. I twisted in the seat just before the bottle overflowed and aimed at the floor. Snags looked at me strangely and sniffed at my urine and stepped in it. When I finished, there was a puddle soaking into the carpet next to Snags. I put the cap back on the bottle and pulled my shorts up and felt queasy with dread. I waited. A few minutes later, I saw Rosso and Wayne frown and look at each other in the back seat. A little while after that, Steve screwed up his face. The fuck is that smell? Mate, it smells like piss back here, said Wayne. Mick played around with the controls on the centre console. It might be your aircon, he said. Gets mouldy in the vents and smells rotten. Maybe it needs a clean out. Bullshit, said Steve. I had this serviced and detailed two months ago. See, Steve saw me in the rearview mirror. He must have noticed how guilty I looked. What, he said. Eh? I was too scared to say anything. What, Steve said again. I opened my mouth, but no words came out. Rosso turned and looked at me. Then he poked his head over the back seat and saw the puddle. Oh, fucking hell. Fuck! What, yet still yelled Steve. He was barely looking at the road. Jesus Christ, said Rosso. I've had enough of this, said Steve. He pulled over and turned around in his seat. I was shaking. Fuck, said Rosso. I'm sorry, mate. Snags is pissed all over the back here. He grabbed Snags by the collar and shook him. Bad boy. Bad, you little bugger. Don't, I said. It's not his fault. Is that what you'd like me to end? That's what I'd like you to end. Okay. <laughs> Just making it about me for one second. The reason why that scene so affected me was this. I was in Germany on an exchange when I was 16 and we were going to visit the grandmother. So we were going from the middle of Germany up towards the north, a long trip, forgot to go to the loo, and I was scared of the family. They were a slightly tricky family, my German was okay, wasn't brilliant, I was 16. And I waited and waited and waited and couldn't get them, couldn't possibly ask them to stop. It's a really big autobahn, it was really fast, and I would sooner have asked them to do that than to drive back home again. Got to the grandmother's place, I could hardly speak, in fact I hadn't spoken for about an hour. Um, opened the door, rushed out, almost pushed the grandmother over, who I'd never met, went to the toilet, came back. The reason I'm telling you that story is because when you're in a car that you can't stop, it is the greatest feeling of helplessness. And when you're a child that can't articulate what you need to articulate, you feel so, so pow powerless. And that, if I wasn't already with Sam, that scene encapsulated just how Sam's life had been. Can you tell me how, or if you remember, how that particular scene came to you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, I wasn't, I, I've not been in a situation where I've been trapped on an autobahn, <laughs> um, ready to pass out. Um, 
But no, I, I think it was about trying to capture the anxieties and the helplessness and the lack of control uh, that, that Sam ha has in her life. There's a kind of ongoing motif, I suppose, in Honeybee, uh, where, for example, Sam has uh, recurring nightmares about being trapped on a train that is going in the wrong direction that she can't stop. And obviously this has a, a thematic link to the fact that at 14, Sam's body is developing in a direction that doesn't represent who she is. And she is not in a position to control it or to stop it. Um, and so there are a few incidences in Honeybee which, uh, with which that motif kind of echoes, and this was one of them, I suppose. Yeah. As you can tell from that scene, this is a book that deals with serious subjects, but it's funny, and it's uplifting, and it's heartwarming. And one of the characters who is particularly uplifting, particularly heartwarming, is Aggie, and she's one of my favourites too. Tell me about Aggie. Right, so Sam goes to live with Vic, uh, and it's a very stable, suburban, middle-class uh, neighbourhood, I suppose. Uh, and a couple of houses down live the Mima Dumas. Uh, and Agnes Mima Duma is 16, and she's a force of nature. She decides within moments of seeing Sam that they're going to be best friends, and she swoops her way into her life and uh, doesn't really give Sam much of a choice. Um, Sam, uh, Aggie is a, is a wonderful character. She's vivacious, she's charming, she's charismatic, she's opinionated, uh, she's very geeky. Um, uh, you know, she's an unabashed nerd uh, and she just announced herself in this story and I, I loved her from the very first moment uh, that, that she appeared. Um, but you know, she's Sam's first and only friend, really. Um, Sam has struggled uh, to trust relationships. You know, she has a very complicated relationship with her mother, um, with, with whom uh, she adores her mother, mm. but her mother's uh, relationship with her is fraught, very inconsistent and quite volatile. So Sarah will smother Sam with love uh, and then retract it. It'll, it'll retreat. And Sam has, uh, at such a young age, uh, this creates quite complicated feelings. Um, Sam blames herself for, for one thing um, and she's distrustful of relationships because uh, as nourishing and comforting as they are, she understands that they can be retracted at a moment's notice and leaving you feeling bereft. Um, she's also uh, uh, somebody who contends with a great deal of shame and self-loathing and anxiety. Um, uh, on account of her background and also on account of the fact that, that she's struggling with her gender identity and has not received any support in, in her life. And so she's quite distrustful of relationships uh, and she's certainly not forthcoming uh, in terms of her own truth. And so she lies to Aggie a fair bit about uh, who she is and where she's come from. But what Aggie gives Sam, I think, more than anything and what every character who comes into Sam's universe or her orbit offers Sam um, is support. You know, we have in Honeybee, I think, uh, quite literally a supporting cast. And the most important thing I think that 
that Aggie offers Sam, other than uh, love and affection and consistency, is perspective. And I'll explain how. So uh, Aggie, for example, uh, is an acolyte of a, uh, a role-playing tabletop game called Dungeons and Dragons. For those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, it's not like a board game that you, like Monopoly, that, that you start and uh, you seek to, to win or to lose. It's really about going on an adventure. Uh, to play Dungeons and Dragons, um, you select an avatar, which is sort of attributed to a, a figurine, and that entity, that uh, creature, uh, represents you on the board. And uh, you will fill out a corresponding character sheet. And in it, you will describe characteristics and attributes uh, that will either help or hinder that character or you, your avatar, in any given journey. You know, games of Dungeons and Dragons can go for years. In fact, one of the consultants for, for Honeybee, Alice Shotty, because Dungeons and Dragons, uh, I didn't realize this, but it's actually quite uh, popular amongst people in the trans and gender diverse community. Um, mm. But Alice has had a game going for 20 years. It's wild. But as a Christmas gift, uh, Aggie gifts Sam her own character. She gives her a little figurine that represents Sam. It's Sam. And she also gives her a character sheet. And in it, Aggie very perceptively uh, gives Sam an adjudication of who she is, all of her strengths and some of her weaknesses. And for Sam, who has such a contorted, uh, diminished view of herself that has been so contaminated by outside forces and the aforementioned self-recrimination and anxiety and guilt, it's like meeting herself for the first time. It's like looking into a mirror and seeing herself as she truly is for the first time. And it becomes an enormous catalyst for change. Because Sam realises that if she were to fill out her own character sheet with her own view of herself, it would be unrecognisable to Aggie or to Vic or to any of these people who see her as she plainly is. And so for Sam, uh, that becomes a real moment of reckoning. It's something so simple as a figurine and a character sheet, um, but what supporting, loving, generous people in our lives can often give us is perspective. Um, and Sam recognises in that moment that she might be worth saving. Craig, Honeybee's your third book. Jasper Jones is your second book, and it was enormously successful. Between Jasper Jones and Honeybee, you've been writing screenplays. So tell me, how does it feel to write screenplays as opposed to fiction? What is it you like about that genre of writing? Um, it's, it's a bit like speaking a different language, I suppose. Mm. You, you're, you're trying to get to, to the same goal, you're just describing it in a different way. So it's a bit of a code switch, um, but I, I really enjoy the challenge. I have, I have quite an accidental film career, I suppose. I was brought in to, to write a page one rewrite of the Jasper Jones uh, script, uh, and it became our shooting script, essentially. Um, and I was really learning as I went. I was, I was in the deep end, essentially. You know, I had some great help, 
um, and being able to work closely with, uh, with Rachel Perkins was uh, an extraordinary way to, to, to learn the intricacies of film. Um, but I have to say that as a novelist who has traditionally written being sequestered in a dark and dank room, the opportunity to be part of the circus that is uh, the production of a film was an extraordinary experience. Uh, to have 60 or 70 people um, uh, attending to something as delicate as an idea that I had once, to bring it to life, to have millions of dollars at stake, to have uh, every minute uh, structured and scheduled, um, uh, and to have just the incredible expertise of some extraordinarily talented people, from our cast down to uh, our art department, our, our costumes, and obviously Rachel, our director. It was astonishing. It was an incredible experience. Um, and I really loved it. I was there every day on set. Rachel was very generous. Um, I was there at the split with her. Um, you know, we had some budget concerns, so you know, I found myself doing continuity some days and uh, performing other roles at, at, at others. Um, but it was an astonishing experience and, it's, and an amazing ride to be on. Um, and I wanted to do it again. I still want to do it again. Uh, so you know, I've written a number of screenplays and I've got a, a few films in development. Um, uh, we're very hopeful, I can't describe who, but uh, we've sold the option to Honeybee and, and we'll be developing it for as a six-part series. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful of, of uh, being part of a, a writer's room that, that, um, uh, that develops it and throughout every stage of production as well. Um, so it's, it's just an amazing way to think about stories, I suppose, uh, to collaborate and to bring uh, ideas in and to assemble a story rather than to sit there and over time let it uh, quite intimately come to you. It's just they're, they're, they're quite separate uh, means of expression, I suppose. Um, they're very different, but I, but I kind of adore them both. If you had to choose just one, what would you choose? Oh, I'm a novelist, yeah. You're a novelist. Yeah. I mean, um, even my process of, of uh, writing screenplays, I will write a very detailed, what they call a treatment, uh, which is kind of the, 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 the bare bones, beat by beat presentation of, a, of what will be a, uh, a screenplay, a narrative. I write a very detailed um, treatment, which, which reads like prose, I suppose, but without the, the, the necessary imagery that a novel might have. Um, but that's how I explore story. It's, it's, it's how I uh, create. And what I do is I then adapt that to the screenplay format, which I find uh, a little confining, a bit too rigid. I, I can't explore in that, uh, under those rigidities. Um, but it's nice, to, it's nice to have those parameters, I think. It keeps you quite honest. It's a great challenge. That's a really tricky puzzle. Um, but it's not where I... I don't have any freedom under that format. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but that uh, tends to be how I work. We're down to the wire. Ten minutes to go. Over to you. My understanding is that we have a roving mic, so please pop off your hands and wait for the mic. We have someone in the middle. Thanks. Hmm. 
Do I make them or do I meet them? It's a great question. The truth is, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, in order to distill the essence of a character, in order to present them as they truly are, it's a bit like meeting any stranger. You need to give them the time and the space to, to come to you. You need to meet them uh, and speak with them and see how they react under pressure uh, to understand who they are. Some characters over the course of my writing life have been a bit inscrutable, been difficult to get to know. So Jasper Jones, for example, hmm. uh, I was in a bit of a wilderness with him for, for a long while. I didn't know why he was occupying my thoughts so much. And I found it diffi difficult to, to access him um, and, and, and really under understand who he was fundamentally. A bit like Charlie. Um, and the same as Vic. You know, he's a guarded character. Uh, he's not giving much away. And so for me, it took a little while for him to, to unfurl. For Sam, I think I knew the core of who she was. I knew the fundamentals of who Sam was, but it took me a little while to really uh, intuitively recognize what her voice was going to be because it's her book, you know. Uh, and it's a very raw and intimate and naive voice. And so I had to give her the time to sort of develop that of her own accord. It's strange as a novelist. You feel as though you've been given a story. You feel as though you've been given characters and you are a conduit for them and it. When it doesn't work is when you try to force it into being, uh, when you try to predetermine what it might be. That's when it feels dishonest. It's a very strange thing uh, to try to distill a story. Best way I can describe it to you is that we are all readers and we all know what it's like to be spellbound and hypnotized by a story. When we're truly lost in a story, we forget all sense of who we are, what time it is. We, uh, we lose our own identities and we inhabit the lives and experiences of others. And it's a really beautiful, meditative space to inhabit. As a novelist, you need to enter that space, but you need to reserve enough of yourself to record it at the same time. And it's a difficult... Uh, kind of world, universe to, to inhabit. There's no map to get there. The only way you can really uh, functionally ac access that place is to be really patient. That's why novels take so long. Um, and so it's only once you're in that space that you can spend time with your characters, meet them, think about them. You know, it's just a different plane of thinking, I suppose. Um, it's not quite consciousness, it's not quite subconsciousness. It's, on, a, on an entirely different plane, I suppose. Um, but to answer your question, it's, it's a little bit of both, yeah. Do you have another question? One here, one down the front, one in the middle. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I hope you're enjoying the beautiful weather. Question, it's hard to sort of think, you know, so many questions run through your head. Influences for you, 
Uh, great question, and thank you for your very warm welcome. I'm staying at Molly Mook. I was going to have a swim this morning, but uh, looking a bit intimidating out there. Yeah, we've done a Harold Holt, I think. Are you still out there? Um, yeah, wh what a wonderful question. Um, I suppose as it, as it relates to Honeybee, um, there are a couple of novels that have meant a lot to me that I feel have um, a kind of, that are a kind of psychological antecedent, I suppose. There's a book uh, that I read when I was a kid, when I was quite young, I would have been eight or nine, I suppose, that I kind of speculatively uh, pulled out of the shelves of my school library. And, uh, you know, I, I checked the tag at the back and I was the only person who had ever got it out. Um, but I read it and I was so transfixed and I was so transported and it introduced me to a complexity of feelings that I'd never really felt at that age. Um, and it became a very, very dear book to me. I read it over and over and again and I never took it back. Uh, and that book, uh, some of you might be familiar with it, uh, it's called Goodnight Mr. Tom by uh, Michelle McGorian. It's a beautiful book. Um, and it told the story of uh, a young person uh, in World War II, uh, a young kid from London, from a very volatile background, who was uh, sent up north to be billeted with a crotchety old man who uh, lost his wife and uh, didn't want to deal with anybody. Um, so I suppose that kind of template has stayed with me for a, for a long while. Um, another book who I think whose, whose voice uh, corresponds, I think, they're two very, very different stories, but, but the voice is so raw and naive, and it's one of my very favourite books um, uh, by one of my very favourite people and one of my very favourite writers. His name is Willie Vlaughton. There's a book called Lean on Pete. Um, it came out a few years ago, and it's about a young boy called Charlie. He's 15, uh, and he sets out to save a racehorse who's been put out to pasture, and they go on a bit of a road trip together. Um, and it's heartbreaking, heart-melting, and, and really beautiful. But I suppose, uh, in terms of times in my life that have clarified who I am and, and uh, have meant the world to me, when I was 14 years old, there was a novelist who came to my school. Uh, and it was the first time in my life, as somebody who adored books and deified writers, uh, that I had seen a novelist in the flesh. And it was enormously clarifying for me because at that moment I understood that it was actually a vocation that you could pursue. These people weren't gods, they were normal, uh, well, relatively. And at that moment I knew who I was. And so uh, at that stage I was living in a, in a little town called Dwelling Up with less than 300 people and I lived on an orchard in a shed. And... If I was going to be a novelist, I needed to write a novel. And so that's what I set out to do. I saved up, picked a lot of apples and bought myself a computer. And I wrote a very bad novel, uh, discreetly, very secretively. You know, sure, my mother thought I was doing other things in there, but uh, I was actually writing a novel. And once I'd finished that, I actually wrote uh, this writer who'd come to our school. I wrote him a letter. It was very passionate. Uh, and I declared my intention to dedicate myself to, to, to books and stories and words. And I waited on his response for a long time. Every day I'd go into the dwelling up post office and I'd wait to see if he got back to me. And every day I left disappointed until a few months later there was a letter for me. And, you know, we all have treasured artifacts of our life and that letter is one of them. Uh, he took me seriously, but he didn't lie to me. 
you know, and there are pieces of advice in that letter that, that I still adhere to, still mean the world to me. I had told him that I wanted to become a writer. And he said, don't become, be a writer. And I think just the, the simple practice of writing every day and uh, practicing your craft is the most important thing that, that you can do. He also told me that it was a scary, beautiful decision that I had made. Uh, scary because uh, the life of a novelist is the hardest one you can possibly pursue, but beautiful because it's also the most rewarding. And so we had a correspondence for many years and um, it, was, uh, it, it meant the world to me, I suppose, and it gave me the confidence to pursue writing, and that's what I did. Um, I, left out, I, left, I finished my school and I left uh, home as, as soon as humanly possible. Um, and I eschewed university just because I wanted to write. And I started doing notes on my first novel, which was called Rhubarb, when I was 16. Um, and it took me three years, and I worked every shitty job to fund the time to write. Um, and it got published, and I've, you know, it got me on my way. Uh, and so I was very, very grateful uh, for that man to give me uh, that the time and the respect and, and to take me seriously at that moment, it meant the world to me. Yeah. I'm afraid we're out of time. I know there were other questions. Oh, I'm so sorry, the, the I good on there. <laughs> I know the good, there is good news, Craig. The good news is that for everyone who had a question, there is a bookshop downstairs and Craig will be there signing his books and you'll be able to say hello and if there's a quick question, I'm sure Craig will be happy to answer it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Craig, Thank for your you time. Everybody. Thank you to the audience. Thank you, StoryFest. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.